صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners. I'm very excited to tell you we're joined by one of my very, very favourite Palestinians, a 48 pal, Diana Butu from Palestine, is a Canadian-Palestinian human rights attorney. Diana moved to the Occupied West Bank in 2000, where she served as legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team and later to the Palestinian president. She was part of the team that assisted in the successful litigation of the wall before the International Court of Justice. Diana resigned from her post in 2005, but remains a frequent commentator on Middle East politics and human rights with op-eds and appearances in media outlets such as the New York Times, CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and of course, Palestine Remembered. Good morning, Diana. How are you? Good morning, Nasser. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm well, thank you. Thank you. No, it's an absolute pleasure. The honour is all ours. Now, Diana, we've got you on because we've, we've got in Palestine, historic Palestine, the most democracy anywhere in the world. We've had four elections uh, for the Israeli <laughs> Knesset. We're about to have the Palestinian uh, elections, but we might leave the Palestinian elections till a little bit later on. But first, let's talk about the Israeli elections. The, the fourth one in two years. Bibi, Benjamin Netanyahu, most likely to be prime minister again, but he hasn't got his 61 seats as yet, does he? No, he doesn't. Uh, it will become apparent in the coming weeks. And many analysts here are saying that there's going to be a fifth election. Now, I should say, Nasser, you know, there isn't really, uh, people make it seem as though he doesn't have the 61 seats. In effect, he does. It's just the, the, the system has the seats, but he doesn't, which is to say that there is no real difference. In fact, there is no difference whatsoever between those who are in favor of Netanyahu and those who are opposed to Netanyahu in terms of policy. All of the Zionist parties have stood firmly in terms of supporting Israeli colonization, settlement activity, a home de demolition of Palestinian homes, the siege on Gaza. There is no difference between Avigdor Lieberman and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Gedon Saar, Benny Gantz, Yair Lapid. They're all effectively the same. The only reason that Netanyahu doesn't have those 61 seats is because people want him out. They don't want his ideologies gone. They just want him gone. There's no question about that. This is the most right-wing Knesset of all time. Oh, definitely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was doing some rough math. Based on my understanding of the parties that reign, greater than 70, uh, 70 of the seats won so far a straight-out right-wing fascist Zionist, and up to about 98, I reckon, are uh, hardcore, you know, right. There's no such thing as a Palestinian, no Palestinian state west of the Jordan River. Correct. 
the slide to fascism, I mean, we've known it's been a while, but it's almost complete, yeah? It, it is complete. Look, I, I think it's even worse than, than what, what, you're, what you're mentioning. We've got, um, if you look across the spectrum and look towards the other end of the spectrum, meaning the, the left-wing end of the spectrum, there's only, uh, there's six seats that are held by the joint list, four seats that are uh, held by the Islamic movement, um, so for a total of 10, and then seven seats held by merits. If you count merits as left-wing, which I think many of us would be hard pressed to do, but even taking it on face value as they call themselves left wing, you're really looking at a total of 17 out of 120 seats that have gone completely, 17 out of 120 that are somewhat focused on rights. And then the remaining, the remaining 103 that are in the right wing to fascist, fascist line. Um, so this is, this is definitely the most right wing Knesset. And this is what we've seen over time is that over time, the left wing left and instead has been replaced by not just right wing, but extreme right wing to the point where now Likud is, is trying to position itself as being somewhat centrist. They label themselves as right, but they say that they're willing to work with the so-called left. And so they position themselves as being centrist. I mean, the party that is the party of settlements, the party of war, the party of occupation, the party of home demolitions, the party that has pushed for the Jewish nation state law is somehow the, the kind of viewed as the centrist party. This is where it is to what, what where Israeli politics are today. We should speak about what's right of Netanyahu and what he did <laughs> in creating that coalition of uh, the religious Zionist party, the Kahanists. Yes. Yeah, so the Kahanists just, I don't know how much listeners know, if, if you will indulge me for just a minute, I'll, I'll go into who they are. But the Kahanists, it was, it was a Meir Kahane, Rabbi Meir Kahane was an Orthodox rabbi who was born in Brooklyn in, in the early 30s. And he founded a party that was called the Kach Party. And the Kach Party called for the establishment of a theocratic Jewish state. This theocratic Jewish state was supposed to encompass not just all of current uh, 48 Palestine, Israel, and the occupied Palestinian territories, but also called for establishing this state in large parts of neighboring Egypt, in Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq. And Kahane called for the strict separation of Jews and non-Jews. Um, and he also called for the enslavement or the expulsion of indigenous Palestinians from the country. And there's a bunch of laws that he proposed. What happens is that he gets elected into the, into the Knesset in 1984, and he becomes so popular that, that there are two ways of, of dealing with him. The one way is one group of people say, we've got to expel him from the Knesset or pre prevent him from running again because his views are so racist. And then another line of thinking says, we have to, we have to prevent him from running in the Knesset again because he's going to end up sweeping Likud. Either way that you cut it, the, the end result was that he ended up getting banned from running in the Knesset in, in 1988. The problem is, is that his views didn't die. 
in fact, they became very much mainstreamed. And the people who are today in the Knesset, many of them are his followers. People like Avigdor Lieberman, who is now the head of uh, the Israel, Israel Batano, Israel's Our Home Party, or Yehuda Klick, who's the head of the, the Temple Mount Faithful. All of these people are, they were, they were students of, of Kahane and the, themselves were very much his supporters. And all that happened after his party was expelled and after he was, was assassinated was that these very same individuals either formed their own parties or they found their ways into, into the Likud party. And they, they very much brag about how they infiltrated the Likud party. And so many of the laws that we've been seeing over, over the course of the past three decades are laws that Kahane himself were things that he, were, he was pushing for. And the normalization of Kahane's movement has happened over the course of the past three decades. What's changed this time, Nasser, is that for the first time we see them back again in power. And with this political party that's called Otsma uh, Yaudit, Jewish Power Party, um, with many people who, who are describing it as the legal version of the Kach Party that was established in the late 80s. The head of this Jewish Power Party, a man named Itamar Benigvir, is somebody who talks very proudly about uh, Baruch Goldstein, the man who massacred 29 Palestinians in Hebron in February of 1994 during Ramadan. I mean, he's so delighted with him that he calls him his hero. He dressed up as him during one of the Purim parties that they had many years ago. And Benigvir's vision, his, his, his way of viewing the world is very much through this, through the lens of Mayer Kahane. And the party itself calls for establishing a national authority that is going to encourage emigration of Palestinians from, from Palestine. It beggars belief. You mentioned the Kach Party, how it became outlawed. In fact, most of the world treated it as a terrorist organization as well. Indeed. Yes, indeed. We've gone from a terrorist organization in the United States to a guy who dresses up as Baruch Goldstein in a Purim party and then idolizes him is now, I mean, based on the way Netanyahu worked those, those parties together to get above the threshold so they could win Knesset seats. I mean, they've won as many seats as the Labor Party, which formed the state of Israel. This Israel's version of the Ku Klux Klan, if you will. There's a real chance this guy's going to be in cabinet. Yes, indeed. Uh, one of the things that that was very interesting is that this wasn't um, this wasn't the first time that we saw these types of of agreements being cut. Now, the the uh, the, cert the agreement that you're talking about right now is. In Israel, there's a system that if you pass the threshold, so if you pass the three and a quarter percent of the of the electoral vote, uh, but you don't have enough seats to make another seat. So you know when you when you pass the three and a half, three and a quarter percent, your party gets four seats. But assuming you just get the four seats, but you don't have enough to turn it into a fifth seat, you can enter into what's called a vote sharing agreement and share votes between another party to push you over and to get perhaps a fifth seat or a sixth seat or a seventh seat or what have you, and vice versa, that if they have enough that can push Likud in to get another seat, vice versa. And that was the, the agreement that, that Netanyahu entered into. Now, you don't enter into these vote sharing agreements uh, just because you, you like the, what, the color of the, of the person's eyes. You do it because 
there is some tangible benefits that are coming from being in this vote sharing agreement. And in this case, there's a lot of speculation that we're going to see in Amar Ben-Gvir in some type of post. It's also important to note, Nasser, that Smotrich himself, the guy who's number one on the religious Zionism list, whose views don't entirely differ that strongly from Itamar Ben-Gvir's views, he already has been minister in this country. We'll see that once again, that he's going to be elevated into a, into a cabinet post. I, I would not be surprised if we see him ele- elevated once again into a cabinet post. It's some scary, scary stuff. Diana, let's talk about the joint list and what happened. Last election, there were 15 seats for the joint list. Correct, yeah. Feeling of optimism amongst 48ers as to representation within the Knesset. Benny Gantz was offered support from Ayman Ode to form a government so that we could get rid of Benjamin Netanyahu. That fell on deaf ears, that offer. And Benny Gantz has been relegated to almost nothing now following doing the deal with Benjamin Netanyahu and power sharing. Deservedly so. Deservedly so. (laughs) (laughs) But the joint list, what's happened there? The joint list. So, you know, the joint list is, it's interesting, Nasa, because it's when when I think back on it, it's really the only political party in the Knesset that spends so much of its time justifying its existence, both to Jewish Israelis and to Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship. It's uh, an, an inordinate amount of time. And at the same time, Netanyahu recognized uh, just how, how damaging the joint list could be for him. And if you think back to the last election, or if you even think back to this election, which we just talked through, the only real opposition to Netanyahu is the joint list and presumably merits. That's it. There's no other real opposition in the country to this onslaught that we've seen happen Um, for over seven decades, and in particular during the Netanyahu years. So you'll recall that in 2015, when the joint list was formed, it was the four political parties, that four uh, Palestinian political parties that came together to form this one list, hence the name joint list, that at the time we saw Netanyahu in unpolished, raw form, in which he came out on Facebook and said, the Arabs are voting in droves. And you'll recall at the time that that statement was condemned by a lot of people, including at the time, the US President Barack Obama. But since 2015, he has put his sights on the joint list because he wants to, he being Netanyahu, Netanyahu has put his eyes on the the joint list because he wants to crush the joint list. And he spent a lot of effort over the course of the past four elections doing exactly that. So the first thing that he did was, you'll recall in the first elections, that he put um, cameras in polling stations as a means of intimidating voters. People became frightened to go out and vote because they saw that the state is actually watching them. The second thing that he then did was he then started this campaign in which he had different individuals start asking you, what has the joint list done for you? What is it exactly that the joint list has done for you? As though the joint list is somehow the 
prime minister of the country in charge of the budget, in charge of all of the government institutions, and that the joint list can single-handedly unravel 70 years of, of colonial apartheid, which of course it can't. But that propaganda, that slogan ended up sticking in the minds of many. And the third thing that he did is what happened in this last election, which was he, tr he did two things at the same time. One is that he started saying to, to Palestinians, I am, I'm here for you. I'm the one who can fix your problems. In fact, I am Abu Yair. I'm the father of Yair. I am, uh, I'm, I, I'm the one who brought you normalization. I'm the one who understands your problems. Vote for me. At the same time, the other thing that he did during that same election was he took on a divide and conquer strategy and he curried favor with the head of the Islamic movement, a man named Mansour Abbas. And sure enough, we saw that the Islamic movement ended up separating from the joint list. So it was no longer four parties running on one ticket, but now three parties running on one ticket and another party running on another. Yeah, it's not gonna do anything for Palestinians. We know that. Anybody who's watching should know that. If he wanted to, he's, he's Israel's longest serving prime minister. He could have solved many of the problems that he's created long ago. He could, he could block home demolitions. He could have not pushed for the, the passage of the Jewish nation state law. He could make sure that issues of crime are actually addressed rather than ignored by police. He could have done a ton of things, but he's chosen not to because he doesn't want to do anything. He's not, he's not like he likes us. And yet it's because of this divide and conquer strategy that we ended up seeing that the joint list ended up breaking up. And in turn, we saw that voter turnout was among the lowest that it's been in a very, very, very long time with, I think the final number was uh, something like 32% of Palestinians who were eligible to vote ended up voting. So the numbers were, were incredibly low and the results showed. We now see that in the joint list, which had gone from 15 seats, it's now down to six seats and the Islamic movement is down to four seats combined. That's a total of uh, 10 seats down from 15 just um, just a year ago. Well, that's very disappointing. To the question, Anna, we, we spoke about it the last time I was in Palestine with you. There's some criticism inside and outside about legitimizing Israel by participating in uh, elections. Where do you stand today? What do you think? There's, there's no legitimating Israel. It's a, to me, I, I actually don't really fully understand that argument of um, that somehow we're the ones who are giving it a veneer of legitimacy. I, I don't see that at all. Um, the, the reason that people vote here is for a mix of reasons. For example, Israel's always going to find a representative, an Arab representative. It, it's just the way that they work. And I think that in that finding the representative, to be able to push and demand and have somebody who's serving in opposition rather than serving in concert is for me very important. You know, one of the reasons that we're seeing this split within the joint list is because Mansour Abbas and his movement are now saying that we can no longer continue to stand in the opposition and we need to actually start being real players in this democratic process. That's something I don't believe in. I think that one of the core issues here is that the, the joint list and, and the parties that are in the Knesset, 
their job is effectively twofold. It's first to try to stand as a strong opposition to many of um, the racist laws and uh, racist laws that, that the Knesset puts forward. They may not be very good at it because their numbers are low, but to have that opposition there, I feel is important. If you look at the numbers, for example, and the, the passage, for example, the, the Jewish nation state law, if there had just been two more members of Knesset standing in opposition, that particular law would not have passed. And there's, there's many of these laws that if they're, the, 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 one of the reasons for them to be there is to actually serve as a strong opposition, um, whether it's to the racist legislation, to the attacks on the Gaza Strip, to the colonization of the West Bank. Uh, that's one, one issue. The second reason that they're there is to try to preserve us as a community and to make sure that we're able to not only survive, but to try to thrive in our own homeland. And, you know, there's many examples that I can give you, but I'll give you one that's very simple, which is that many, many Palestinians, at the end of uh, the grade 12, students here have to pass a matriculation exam a series of matriculations exams, and then they have to sit for a psychometric exam. And while Palestinian students do very well on the matriculation exams, the psychometric exam, like all standardized testing, is is oriented, racist or racistly oriented, it's oriented to the ruling class, etc. And so some people just don't do well on that psychometric exam. In addition, there's a lot of students who don't want to study in, in an Israeli uh, university. They don't want to go to university in an Israeli uh, institution and instead choose that they want to study, for example, in Jordan uh, because it's their mother tongue or they want to study at a, at a university in the West Bank and so on and so on and so on. And, um, and one thing that we've seen that has happened with the presence of these MKs is that, is that in the past, those degrees were not recognized by the state, which meant that if you went off to Jordan and your law degree, your um, dentistry degree, your uh, medical degree, if all these things are not being recognized, those, those families are now gone. That's going to be a student who's going to move to Jordan or move elsewhere, stay in Jordan, stay elsewhere, look elsewhere, and not come back to their homeland. And, uh, and so one of the things they did was to push for the state to actually recognize those degrees. Now, it, that's not a huge thing for many people. But for those who it affects, it is a huge thing. Because instead of having a brain drain that is, put, that imposed, that is imposed upon us by the state, it's actually trying to make sure that people are able to stay in their country and to make sure that we are able to have successful communities. Now, again, there's people who, who want to boycott it. And I understand all of those reasons. For me, as somebody who has looked at the inner workings of how um, everything from settlement activity happens to how this racist legislation happens to how it is that we get um, the, the Israeli army passing and pushing for demolitions and so on. I think that we're missing an opportunity to, if, to try to at least as slowly as possible or as much as possible, um, put the halt on those, on those plans. 
And for me, the idea of, of having a person who is in every place trying to serve as opposition to each and every one of, Israel, of Israel's designs is important to me. And I think that that is, um, is for me, the way that I want to view this. I'm, I don't want to give Israel a pass to do whatever it is that Israel wants to do. Now, for those who, who seek to boycott the election, um, I also think it's important for us to ask and to and for to, to ask and to develop alternative structures. Is there an alternative structure that is in place to make sure that our kids are are getting educated? Because I don't see that there is one that's in place yet. Is there an alternative structure to make sure that we are working in in, in terms of healthcare to make sure that the healthcare system is there? Again, I don't see something that is in place there. And so as long as we have people who are, who are uh, as long as us as Palestinians are in the system and having to, uh, having to feel the brunt of the system, I, for one, want somebody who's, who can try to put the brakes as much as possible on the system. That's me. Well, that's a pretty clear and articulate case, Adana. And as we spoke earlier, God willing, one day you'll run for president of Palestine. You'll have, you know, I'll be there as a, I don't know, a typist or something. That's all I'll qualify for. Uh, but I'll be supporting you. Now, Diana, we spoke just before we got on, came on the air about a interview you did in Nablus and you took your mother with you. And just yes. uh, take, take our listeners through and about the challenge of that and coming home. Yeah, sure. So I, as I was mentioning to you a little bit earlier, uh, last week, I went to Nablus because I wanted to see um, some of the individuals who are running on uh, one of the slates with, uh, in the upcoming Palestinian elections. And um, I decided to take my mom with me. Uh, my mom was born in Palestine in 47. And she, um, she hadn't been to Nablus in a while. And so I thought it'd be, it'd be nice to, to go on this road trip to, together. We got into Nablus and then on the way out, um, the, the usual panic hit me. Uh, how is it, which checkpoint am I going to have to go out? Now I have to say, Nasser, I'm one of the, the, I'm one of the privileged ones who has the ability because I, um, I have uh, Israeli citizenship that I can go in and out and, uh, and my mother as well. Um, but even though you can go in and out uh, and, and many, many, many people, like millions cannot, um, there's still always a, a stress factor that accompanies it. And in this case, it, the stress factor was that I'm fine going out on my own if the army harasses me on my own, it's different. Um, but with my mom who is in her seventies, who's a diabetic and who wears hijab, I didn't want her to be subjected to the same level of abuse that I've, I've been ex uh, subjected to throughout the, uh, throughout my time here. And so I, I made probably, if I'm remembering correctly, it was something like 20 phone calls to different friends who come in and out of, um, out of Nablus, uh, 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 taxi drivers, bus drivers, friends, like other individuals who are coming in and out quite regularly and so on all of them friends. And I even thought of going down from Nablus, going down to Ramallah 
and then going out through the checkpoints in Ramallah because I'm much more familiar with those checkpoints than through the other checkpoints. And uh, uh, and so the consensus, what, there was no consensus. The, the thinking, particularly because of with COVID and, and a lot of the main checkpoints are closed, the, the thinking was um, that I should probably go down through Ramallah just for, for ease. But then one person said, why don't you just try the, the regular checkpoint? And, uh, and if not, then you can drop your mom off on the side of the road and then she can walk through um, this one little area. And then after walking through the, this one little area, you can pick her up on the other side. And again, the only reason that this was the calculation is because of the racism that exists at these, at these checkpoints. In the end, I was fortunate enough that uh, I did manage to, of course, I was not going to put my mother on the side of the road and then drive around to pick her up. I'd rather drive an additional two hours than, than do that. Um, but, you know, these are, in the end, I was, I was successful in terms of going through that main checkpoint. But as I was mentioning to you, it's that all of this brain power that gets wasted thinking about which one of these systems is going to be a little bit easier on me because I'm with my mother and I didn't want to have the car taken apart. I didn't want to have the engine taken apart. I didn't want to have the backseat of the car taken apart. Um, I didn't want them to be asking me a million questions as to what it was that I was doing in Nablus and so on. It's just, it's the, the level of, of not just humiliation, it's this level of like micromanaging your lives to the point where they're actually micromanaging your decision-making as well. Micromanaging your decision-making, but macro using uh, CPU power, brain CPU power. Exactly, exactly. A terrible way for us to finish, Diana, but thank you so very much uh, for speaking to us from Palestine. And we look forward to uh, announcing exclusively on Palestine Remembered the day when your ticket wishing you all the very best diana thank you thank you and i wish you all the best too and that was the truly magnificent diana butu joining us from palestine i'm sure you'll all agree that she'll make a fantastic first palestinian female president or prime minister i can't wait to be one of her citizens if you found this show informative please tell your friends share the podcast and remember There's never been a better time for free Palestine.